What makes healthy eating? What makes it so hard? Is it advertising or is it an issue of economics? In this episode, we're going to be exploring these questions and more as we discuss nutritional insecurity, marketing, and food policy. Hi, I'm Catherine Peck. And I'm Ali Purcell. This is State of the Pod, where science meets society. Today, food-related videos have become popular trends on social media, while food diets such as gluten-free or veganism have increased exponentially in certain number of searches. We are a captive audience, and clearly our stomachs are the way to our hearts. But, with America's well-known obesity epidemic, it's also evident that not, not everyone is on the health trend. Increased consumption of un- unhealthy foods is stemming from our own food behavioral choices, and assuming we are rather rational consumers, These choices should boil down to the market. Are we really rational consumers? There seem to be many forces like marketing acting against us, making the best food choices. As of 2008, more than $5 million is spent every day in the fast food industry to market unhealthy foods to children. This investment is justified by the results. About 40% of children's diets come from added sugars and unhealthy fats. And a CDC study in 2004 found that only 21% of kids aged 6 through 19 eat according to the recommended guideline amounts of fruits and vegetables every day. Not all of the marketing audience is affected the same way. A 2019 study found that African American teens were exposed to more than double the television ads for unhealthy consumption, such as candy or sugary drinks when compared with white teens in 2017. We spoke to Professor Angela Odoms Young, an associate professor in nutritional sciences, about the impact of marketing on nutritional quality at these different structural levels. So. We live in an ultra-processed food system. It's not like we live in a complete food system that's local or fresh or, you know, so part of that is, is, is an issue. And you have a lot of marketing to children. So some of that marketing children see, even pre-literate, they can see, oh, that's a Pizza Hut, you know, logo. They can't read Pizza Hut, but they can see it. Um, the other thing about marketing is that children, until they're at about age seven, they don't realize somebody's trying to sell them something. They only know that you're telling them something is good. So they don't really understand that motivation behind it. They're not like, this person's trying to sell me something. You know, maybe it's not what they say, or maybe it's not as good as they say. Oh, okay, I see an... Uh, a character on a package. Oh, okay, that means that I like the character. That's good. So when it comes to inequity, there is more marketing, more ads to low-income communities and communities of color um, that can really skew uh, their, and I don't even want to say perception, but food choice behaviors. Um, so you had mentioned this ultra processed way of thinking about food. Um, and so I was reading an article, um, about how the article was essentially arguing that we should be thinking about poor nutritional health less as a poverty obesity issue and those being correlated and focusing more on things like giant food corporations that are spending, you know, billions of dollars to influence, you know, health standards and um, dietary standards. And they're spending all this money researching and engineering um, on 
you know, how to make sugars and fats and salts and all those things more addictive um, and cheaper as well. Um, how do you work in those things like food subsidies and, you know, certain crops being grown more in the U.S. and things like that? You know, you can't just look at one of these things. You know, many times people feel, and I'm not sure if that's sort of a U.S. philosophy, but it always has to be an either or. So it's like, okay, well, if we're talking about this, we can't be talking about that. It's like we have to talk about both. It flows all the way from what's grown, what's, you know, uh, things get processed. <laughs> Normally, what's grown matters, what's subsidized matters. So how we grow, what we grow, that that's really important because then it flows um what types of retailers we have. Do we have only large retailers? Do we only have only a few retailers? So part of that, disparities really sit within population health. It's not separate from population health. So many times we use a standard, and usually that standard is wide or more affluent, and that's the standard. But if you compare the U.S. to other contexts in healthcare costs, uh, or in obesity rates. I mean, obesity, of course, is be, has become a global problem. But when you compare, in some cases, we look, and there was an Institute of Medicine report about sicker and shorter lives, that even though we have so much income, you know, essentially, it's not just comparing disparate populations. It really is comparing our overall population to other populations of why. So there's something occurring, but it's not an either or, it's more. So we're not doing that great overall when it comes to health outcomes in the United States, but there are certain populations that is disproportionately impacting. When talking about income disparity, food, and nutrition, the practice of supermarket redlining comes to mind. This is a phenomenon that began in the 1960s when large franchises began to move their stores to the wealthier suburbs. A 2012 study in Connecticut investigated a case of supermarket redlining. When a major supermarket in New Haven had shut down, food insecurity was demonstrated to have increased by 13.4% in the span of one year. You may have heard the term food desert. This is a term that was developed to identify geographic areas characterized by a lack of access to supermarkets or fresh produce. However, it is a bit more complicated than that. There's been a lot of critique, and I've been part of that criticism as it relates to food deserts. Even that term currently is has re been reevaluated. So the food desert term came about really, as you mentioned, with this focus on supermarkets. And supermarkets can be an indicator of inequity because it, we live in a corporate structure. Corporations locate in certain communities. They make choices on uh, where they go. There was a big movement of supermarkets, malls. You see a lot of exodus uh, that people moved out to the suburbs. Certain types of people moved out to the suburbs. So part of that idea of focusing on supermarkets isn't totally a bad one because when you talk about supermarket redlining, that's really an important indicator of structural oppression uh, or discrimination, you know, geographic uh, discrimination. 
I think where it's flawed is that there's an assumption that people are confined to their neighborhoods. And the idea that people don't have agency to go and find what they need. So it was the idea that, oh, a supermarket isn't located here. And so people don't, they can't get fruits and vegetables. So that's the mechanism by which links poor diets to supermarkets not being located in that community. And we know that that's not totally true. So part of the indicator of supermarkets bring also other types of retailers where you have economic development that brings jobs. And so it's a broader indicator than just the idea, no produce, people are not eating produce. It's a more complicated equation. Um, I think the other piece of that, so that's on the determinant side. The determinant side is if you start to map not only food retail, but what would be around food retail, you see that there is just a lack of economic capacity in a lot of communities because those retailers have exited. And you also don't have that investment, capital, in local businesses that are run by local people. And so it's sort of a bigger indicator um, of a problem that exists that we know is a predictor of health, actually money, capital. And what would you say the biggest misconception um, of those, I guess, in power, like legislators, politicians, what would you say is their biggest, I think, misconception about um, like nutritional inequality and low-income communities, um, things like that? Are there? I think our biggest problem is that, and, you know, I use the term food choice. Food choice is in chance. So within every context, you have life chances. So your life chances shape your choices. And, and not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes that a restricted environment or restricted income, some Folks feel like, oh, I can educate you out of structural determinants. So only if you knew more, you know what I mean? Part of the idea is that, yes, I'm not saying that we don't need nutrition education. We need nutrition education. We need community-responsive nutrition education. But we also need other things to make sure that people have those resources. You can't educate out of poverty. You can't educate out of racism unless you're going to focus on, you know, giving people opportunity, but you can't nutrition educate out of poverty. At some point in time, it's still a limitation that people have that they don't have access to resources that they need. So in some ways, people believe that if only it's the parents' fault. Is you know, it doesn't matter that we don't have, that we have to travel on two buses to get access to an apple. Um, it's the parents' fault. And so many people believe, and that's sort of the language that, oh, the parents, they're, they're just eating McDonald's or, you know, they're feeding their kids. And that might be the outcome, but it's not the determinant. In terms of specific community-based initiatives or programs that you've been involved in or heard about, um, or even 
more broadly policy changes. Um, what have you seen that's been, you know, particularly effective? Um, and in your mind, I think, what's like the ideal relationship between government action and legislation and then also NGOs and grassroots organizations? How can those things like work together mm-hmm. to be most effective? So I, I will just point out one, well, two examples that I think are effective examples. One is uh, the WIC Fruit and Vegetable Voucher. Uh, the WIC Fruit and Vegetable Voucher has increased based on COVID. So the investment in that Fruit and Vegetable Voucher. So in 2009, the uh, Fruit and Vegetable Voucher was added to WIC. So WIC serves uh, infants, pregnant women, postpartum women, and infants and children up to the age of five. Surprisingly, fruits and vegetables wasn't part of that WIC package. Um, and so in 2008, 2009, that fruit and vegetable, what they call the cash value benefit, became part of the WIC package. During now COVID, because of the government supports that were put in place, that incentive ha- has increased greatly. So the idea is to make that incentive permanent. We've shown, we did studies to show that it had an impact on increasing, um, that the, the changes in the food package had a modest increase uh, in changing people's dietary behaviors. One, because it was a modest change. Now, if we increase that change, so fruit and vegetable incentives in all forms. So that means a cash incentive for people to buy fruits and vegetables. Um, and that they also have that with what they call double up bucks. If you spend your snap at a farmer's market, can you get double the value through an incentive? So those fruit and vegetable incentives help a lot of people. They help farmers that grow fruits and vegetables. They can help the retailers, whether that be a farmer's market or a store, and they help consumers. So part of that, consumers may need more, you know, some supports because we want to avoid food waste. It doesn't only have to be fresh. I have my ideas about how we can kind of support people. You know, those incentives can be varied. So like the WIC incentive, you can you can buy fresh, you can buy frozen, you can buy canned. That fits different people in different situations. Some people need to buy canned, and it needs to be low sodium or low sugar. Some people need to buy frozen, and some people need to buy, you know, have the ability to buy fresh. I think this idea is like fresh or only fresh. If people only have to buy fresh. We have to think about what what's the situation that people have access to to make sure that those incentives have flexibility. Um, but that's a very successful. That's been very successful in all of the forms. The other type of approach that I think is um, important when we look at what works is not the battle between government and NGOs, but how can government policies also support NGOs? So how can government policies, either through things like reimbursement or, uh, you know, making sure that money flows into communities? And a lot of that is happening now with all of these policies that have come as a result of COVID. Money flowing from government into communities for communities to be able to be activated 
uh, and it's a catalyst. And so then you have more community development. So it doesn't have to be either or, but a lot of the programs flow through states, and then those state allocations can go into communities. There's no question that income is a huge factor in how severely we are affected by lack of nutrition. An example of this is medical bills incurred while treating cardiovascular diseases or diabetes that would disproportionately affect households that are already struggling. However, we also know that if given the choice between broccoli and potato chips, we won't always choose broccoli. What is the reason for this? There's marketing, but there's also the simple abundance and cheapness of junk food as a result of food production processes and policy. Crops can be divided into two categories, specialty crops such as fruits, nuts, or vegetables, and commodity crops such as grains, corn, soy, and oil seeds. Many commodity crops are staples in processed foods. Corn can be turned into high fructose corn syrup, soybeans become oil, and sorghum is fed to beef cattle. Simply producing fruits and vegetables is more expensive than commodity crops. A Washington Post article highlighted several examples of this. The cost to grow and harvest one serving of raw broccoli, or one cup, is 14 cents, while the cost of growing one cup of strawberries is 32 cents. Meanwhile, the first ingredient in Twinkies is wheat, and one and a one ounce serving, which is enough for one slice of bread, costs half a cent to grow. The fourth ingredient is corn syrup, and corn is also about half a cent per serving. The reason for this is that specialty crops can't be raised in bulk and stored throughout the year. In commodity crops that will eventually become junk foods, whether they are bruised or damaged in the processes of packaging and production doesn't matter. Specialty crops are also more labor-intensive for planting, harvesting, and packaging. And throughout the entire process of transportation, specialty crops must be kept cold and refrigerated. Additionally, food policies and subsidies don't help with making junk food less accessible. What exactly are subsidies? They're a type of financial aid distributed by the government to industries, businesses, or consumers. Originally implemented to stabilize America's food supply and agriculture industry in the wake of the Great Depression, food subsidies are federal insurance for the agricultural economy to ensure access to reasonably priced food. However, they arguably no longer serve their original purpose. About half of farming subsidies go to large agribusinesses, which generally grow commodity crops, while specialty farms receive only 14% of the subsidies. In some cases, farmers are even penalized for growing specialty crops if they are found to have received federal farm payments to grow different kinds of crops. As a result, smaller agricultural producers in need receive less support, and the key ingredients for junk food, junk foods are made even cheaper when we could be allocating resources to making fruits and vegetables cheaper. Counterarguments that undermine the influence of food subsidies include evidence that research and development initiatives invested in agriculture to make crops bigger and cheaper are what have truly decreased food prices. But overall, the fact remains that 50% of the calories Americans consume come from subsidized foods. A CDC study evaluated some of the adverse effects of subsidized food-heavy diets and included a 41% greater risk of belly fat, 37% high risk of obesity, and a 14% higher risk of abnormal cholesterol. There is an obvious disconnect between this and the purpose of food policies to mitigate the effects of structural inequality. However, the common trend throughout this podcast and broader topic is that it isn't easy to place the blame of nutritional imbalances on a single determining factor, and food subsidies are no exception. Although our individual food choices do play the most immediate and visible role in our nutrition, 
food policies have the powerful potential to level unequal ground for disadvantaged communities. And what does working towards that sort of collective, healthy environment look like? I think it's so important to not be limited by boxes. So as I mentioned with food assistance, I thought, oh, you know, can you really change that? Can we really change these programs? It's so important with innovation and not be confined to the past. And so one things, one thing that I will say to your listeners uh, and and thinking about, you know, what is what do you think society should look like? And then how, what role can you play in making that happen? I think that's really important not to be so limited by the generation before. Thanks for joining us on this exploration of food-centered problems. Your hosts and producers are Catherine Paik and me, Alec Purcell. Our head writer was Priscilla Liu. Special thanks to Professor Angela Odoms-Young for her insights in this episode and the Milstein Lab for our recording equipment and software. See you next time.